seat when you're ready. Just whenever you're ready. I'm just watching you all. We wave to everybody, saying hi. How are you guys doing tonight? Awesome. That's what I like to hear. And uh, we have a great God, so we should be doing great. And as always, want to welcome you here tonight. And uh, if those, you know, maybe those tuning in for the first time, we want to welcome those as well to our midweek study in the book of Job. And speaking of Job, let's open our Bibles to chapter 36. Chapter 36. And tonight, in our study, Elihu, who's been doing a lot of talking here, he's been the last uh, man that's been speaking to Job about what he thinks Job needs and about the wisdom he thinks that he has and he's received and and he's trying to give it to Job. Well, tonight, Elihu is going to declare God's goodness. Last week, he was talking about Job's self-righteousness. Now, tonight, he's going to be declaring God's goodness in chapter 36. Oh, that's, thank you, sir. It is a little brighter up here. That's great. Bible says as you're getting older, as I'm getting, the old light's getting dimmer. So anyway, that helps. Elihu has already spoken a little bit in the defense of God. When he was slandering Job in front of the others that were standing around the ash pile where Job was, Elihu spoke about the character of God in chapter 34. Now in this last section of Elihu's speech to Job, which takes up chapters 36 and 37, Elihu focuses on God again, and for a lot longer time. And as he usually does, Elihu talks about himself again when he introduces this new section. And it's pretty obvious that Elihu thinks pretty highly of himself. And even though it's not wrong to introduce yourself, as Elihu is going to do, it's wrong to try and impress people by exalting yourself. By exalting qualities that you don't have. And that was Elihu's problem. And in what Elihu says here, he really exaggerates four things about himself in verses 1 through 4. And he does it to make himself look better than he really is. And you know what? An exaggeration is a lie. An exaggeration is a lie. If you have to beef up your, your, who you are and beef up the story and, and what you're telling others to get them to think more of you or to be, it, it's basically a lie. So he's, 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 he's basically lying about four things uh, in himself in verses one through four. So let's begin with one, verses one and two, and we see the first thing that he's exaggerating. Verses one and two, he says, Elihu also expected, uh, proceeded and said, Bear with me a little while, a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. So he's going to exaggerate his identity here. He says, let me go on, Job, and I'm going to show you the truth. He says, I haven't finished defending God yet. Elihu, Elihu has spoken more than any of, uh, of Job's three friends at this point. And even though it's not given here, we're informed about his family background in chapter 32, verse 2. Verse 3 now. He goes on to say, I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. So, you know, he's going to uh, exaggerate his intention here. He says, Job, I'm going to present profound arguments for the righteousness of my creator. 
what Elihu is going to talk about for the rest of his speech is God. He's going to speak in defense of God. And the reason which is implied is that he thinks Job has spoken poorly and ignorant about God at times. The third thing that he's going to exaggerate is his intelligence. Elihu doesn't hesitate to tell his listeners that he's a very wise person. And he says so in verse 4 by saying, I will fetch my knowledge from afar. That's like bragging to people about how many degrees you have and how many schools you've gone to. In verse 4 he says, one who is perfect in knowledge is with you. How amazing. What Elihu said is a pretty exaggerating and arrogant thing to say. He's trying to tell Job that he, that is Elihu, is perfect in knowledge. Job, I am perfect in knowledge. Elihu has opened his mouth so we know what he said isn't true. And then the fourth thing that Elihu is going to exaggerate is his integrity. Let's read verse 4 now. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. For truly my words are not false, he says. But what he says here is worthless. Because we've already seen that Elihu does speak falsely about Job. He didn't hesitate to speak, or I should say, he didn't hesitate to accuse Job falsely in chapter 35. But what Elihu says about God is truth. But that is what makes Elihu's false speaking so spiteful. Because no lie is more effective in deceiving than the lie that comes from somebody who sometimes (laughs) speaks the truth. And because the listener doesn't know when the speaker is telling the truth or lying and what they say. And here, Elihu defends the way God deals with evil. And he does this in order to warn Job to repent. And this is another example of the fact that Elihu has made up his mind that Job has really done something terrible. He's committed some terrible sin. That's what's causing all of Job's problems that have come into his life. And in this conclusion, Elihu was like the others who also thought Job's troubles were the result of his sin. Now, Elihu is going to talk about the many sides of God's way of doing things, the many ways, you know, that God does things. In verses two through seven, I'm sorry, in verses five through seven, Elihu says two good things here about the nature of God's policy. Let's read verses five through seven. And Elihu says, Behold, God is almighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings. For he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. So again, Elihu says two good things here about the nature, you know, the the character of God's policy. First, he says in verse 5, God is not unfair. God is impartial. It says in verse 5, he despises no one. The second thing that Elihu says good about God is God is not unjust. The wicked will be punished, but not the oppressed, verse 6 says. It would be great if, again, if all were treated that way, if our courts would treat everyone like this. The word behold in verse 5 introduces four statements by Elihu about God's power. In verse 5, 22, verse 26, and 30. Even though God is just, he says in verses 6 through 7, he's also mighty. 
And though he's mighty, he doesn't lack mercy, and he doesn't despise men. Again, Elihu sided with the three worn-out speakers, Job's first three friends, by maintaining that God doesn't allow the wicked to live. In contrast with Job's insistence that many sinners do live in prosperity. Many sinners do live the good life and even live to a ripe old age. Eli affirmed, on the other hand, that God restores afflicted, righteous people. He gives them the blessings that they deserve. He watches over them in care. Though Job felt that this was no longer true about himself. And even honoring them with kings, Eli, he says, and exalting them. Now this sounds a lot like the arguments of Job's three friends. That God always rewards people in this life according to the way they behave. Job didn't question God's overall practice of justice as we saw in in, in chapter 27. But Job challenged the views of God. The views that God always measures out justice before death and that God was being just with him. Verses 8 through 10. And if they are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. So, here, Elihu speaks about the chastening in God's policy, and that's in in the way that God does things. Sometimes righteous people, meant by the word they here, probably refers to the righteous mentioned in verse 7, they experience trials. That's what's meant by are bound in fetters. And some are subjected to affliction, as it says there, which means being chained, held fast by cords, to a bed of pain. Affliction means being weak or poor, and it's also used in verse 21. The word affliction in verse 15 translates a different Hebrew word. Now, when God afflicts the godly, God doesn't forsake them. He uses the affliction to get their attention for, the, for their wrong behavior. For what they have done, meant by their transgression here. They, they have sinned means they have transgressed. And their arrogance, you know, they show themselves to be strong. So for a person to show himself strong before God, this means he exalts himself against God. He exalts himself against God. Now, removing pride, as Elihu had said before in chapter 33, is one of God's purposes for afflicting his own people. And by pain, God gets people's attention. Sometimes God has to cause us pain, and he has to lay us up, put us down in order for us to get his attention. And when he gives us that pain and that, that, that affliction that, that just puts us down, that's when he teaches us. He makes them listen. He literally opens their ears. And I read this a couple of weeks ago. uh, C.S. Lewis said this about pain. C.S. Lewis said, God uses and chooses unlikely people for the most unbelievable tasks. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And again, that's sometimes the only way that God can get our intention. He, he lays us down. He puts us on our deathbed. Verse 11 and 12. 
Elihu goes on to say, If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. Now, Elihu is speaking about the reward in God's policy, the reward in in God's character and the way he rules. Elihu suggested that a godly sufferer will listen to God and they'll once again obey and serve him. And they'll prosper and they'll enjoy contentment. Learning from suffering and turning from pride was Elihu's point that he made earlier in chapter 33. Now this sounds like the same thing, the same theology of Job's three friends. But they stressed that Job was guilty of sinful actions, but Elihu was more concerned with Job's sinful attitude of pride. But believers who in their pride who refused to learn from their God, made pains. God made pains in them. They don't listen to his convictions. They don't listen to his constructive uh, word. And those who don't will perish by the word, he said in chapter 33, and they'll die without knowledge. They'll die without knowledge that God wanted them to have. Job shouldn't think of his calamity as being proof that he was basically ungodly which was the view of his three friends. And he shouldn't view it as being evidence that God had forsaken him, as Job was thinking. Instead, Job should see his afflictions as a way of helping him. They're to help him humble himself before God. Verse 13 and 14. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the perverted persons. Verses 13 and 14 now, Elihu speaks about the contempt for God's policy. That, that is, those who, who, who contempt, who have contempt for God's policy, the way he rules. True sinners, that is, uh, that is uh, true sinners, the godless hypocrite, in heart resent problems by which God may you know, bind them with. Those who truly are sinners, those who are godless, those who are hypocrites, in their heart, they will represent the affliction that God may put on them. And, and it'll, it'll, you know, it'll even make, their, make them shake their fist more at God. They won't cry for help if God afflicts them. All right? It, 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 it's not, they're, they're not sincere in repentance. And as a result, they die before their time, like Zophar had said in chapter 20. And they're treated in judgment like hardened sinners. Notice it says there in verse 14, like perverted persons at the end of verse 14, like perverted persons. In other words, that, those, the, the word perverted persons speaks of male prostitutes in pagan shrines. Those who are godless, those who are hypocrites, the true sinners, if they don't repent, if they don't answer to the call of God, they're treated, they're treated in judgment like hardened sinners, that is, perverted persons, like male prostitutes who, who used to, you know, um, do perversion in the shrines, the pagan shrines. They were individuals, males or females, that were given over to depraved rites, again, probably in, in idolatrous worship. Verse 15. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. Verse 15, like he was speaking about the compassion that is in God's policy. 
the compassion of God. On the other, because he it just talked about the contempt for God's policy. This is the compassion for God's policy. So on the other hand, God delivers those who are afflicted. The word for those who suffer is poor, afflicted, and it suggests those who are righteous in verse 8. Elihu says that God opens their ears. And apparently they listen and obey, verse 11 says. Affliction, the word affliction in verse 15 translates into oppression or distress. Those who are oppressed or distressed. It means to squeeze or to press or to oppress. A different Hebrew word than than the word affliction that's used in verse 8 and 21. Elihu insisted God brings a repentant believer out of the dark times or out of the dark situations. God will bring the repentant believer out of those dark situations. And the result, whether deliverance is death or, you know, whether it's death or they're delivered, it will all depend on the person's heart. It will depend also on the response to difficulties. The hypocrites, they only pile up God's anger as they themselves harden themselves against God. So no matter how much God disciplines, they will not cry out for help. Again, those that just want nothing to do with God, and when God reaches out to them, whether it's, like I said, through affliction, through pain, you know, on their deathbed, they will basically still shake their fist at God. We see that happening during the tribulation period. In Revelation chapter 16 and verses 17 through 21, let me read it to you. It's, it's when the seventh bowl of judgment is thrown down upon the earth. John said, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Notice it's describing the results of this earthquake. Noises, thunderings, lightnings, great earthquake, mighty earthquakes. Like it never happened before. Man had never seen something like this before. It was, a, it was the cup of God's fierceness and his wrath. Judgment on those in the end days. And it said, it said then every island, every island fled away and every mountain, they weren't found anymore. Shaken to nothingness. It says, and great hail from heaven fell upon them, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. And listen, what was the result of those left behind? Men blasphemed God. Can you imagine? God was pouring out his wrath upon those that that were left behind, those that were in the tribulation period. And again, his wrath meant meant to, to bring them to repentance. But instead of be repenting, they blaspheme God. It says, because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Now, on the other hand, the humble heart, the humble heart gets God's message and they understand. And verse 15 says that God opens their ears. And as a result, they turn away from their sins. The point Elihu was trying to make here, Job, if Job did not confess to the pride, Elihu was was suggesting that he would be showing that he was godless. 
Job, if you don't confess to your pride, you're godless. But if he turned from shaking his fist in God's face, which if Elihu was implying God is doing, that Job is doing, he would show that he was one of God's own. Verse 16 through 19. Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint and what is set on your table would be full of riches. But you are filled with the judgment due to the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you because there is wrath. Beware lest he take you away with one blow for a large ransom would not help you avoid it. Will real riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Elihu here speaks about the counsel, the advice in God's policy. Eli now counsels Job about this policy of God, the, the, the way God does things. And how it applies to Job's situation. The counsel from Elihu is for Job to repent. And this again emphasizes the fact that Elihu, like Job's three friends, believe that Job's troubles say that Job is a great sinner and needs to repent. What God was trying to do here was set Job free from distress according to verse 16. The word distress means straits or a cramped situation. The word is also used in verse 19. And and to take him into a broad place, it says here. A broad place is a picture of prosperity with no obstructions and to give him rich and abundant food. This is the counsel that Elihu says Job needs to follow. It says, he also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Psalm Psalm 18, 19 says, David explained that by the Lord's intervention when the Lord rescued him. David said, God put me in a, put me in a, in a broad place, a broader pro- place of prosperity. He delivered me because God delighted in me. And again, it's a psalm that David wrote. And, and it was as if David was drowning in the midst of, of his strong enemies. And the Lord drew him out of it because God delighted in him. So Elihu is basically saying, so Job shouldn't be preoccupied with what seemed like God's failure to be fair. He was filled. You know, he was filled with, 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 with that problem, according to verse 17, where he could have his table full of riches. Delightful things to eat, basically. We spend a lot of time focusing on what seems like the unfairness of God rather than focusing on the good things of God. So Elihu's advice to Job was that he make sure that his loving or his longing, wanting the good old days of prosperity, didn't turn him aside from God's path. Don't, don't, don't like the good times, Job. You know, don't look back to the good times and focus on the good times and like the good times because they can cause you to go off the path that God has set you on. And, and, and sometimes that will happen when you know, people are bummed out and they're going through a tough time and they begin to focus on how good it was when. And they try to recreate those days. And they'll go back or try to go back in time and recreate how it was back then. And, they, and they, they, they leave God's path. Don't like those tough times. 
because they cause you to go off the, 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 those old good old times that, that God has put you on. Don't get sidetracked. Don't lose your focus and your direction. Verse 20 and 21. Elihu goes on to say, Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed, do not turn to iniquity, for you have chosen this rather than affliction. He says, Nor should Job be so concerned about the night when people are involved in sin. Now, another possible meaning of this here is that Job shouldn't long for the night of death, you know, that he, wanted, that he shouldn't long to, for wanting to die. In other words, Job shouldn't look forward to death as a way out of his suffering. And a lot of people, when things get so tough and they see no way out, and they've been in that situation for a long time, or they're in such pain. Many times people will want to die because, you know, it will end their suffering or their disappointment in life. And, and, and they'll want to go, and they'll want to die because they'll say, well, you know, I'll, I'll be with the Lord. Not, not a good motivation for dying. Not that you want to be with the Lord, but for why you want to die. Remember, God has us where we are because he wants to teach us something. Now, what we're saying is, I don't want to be here. God, I don't want, I don't want, to, I don't want to be a part of this. I'm trying to, to, to get out of this situation than what God wants me to get out of this situation. I, I, just want to die. I just want to die and go home and be with the Lord. No, you just want to die because you don't want to deal with a problem anymore. That's not a good motivation. I'm not wanting to die because I can't wait to see the Lord. And, and I want to be with him more than anything else. There's nothing in this world that I want or could hold me here. That's the motivation. Not because I'm just, I'm just tired of this. I'm just, I've had it with all this. I just want to go be with the Lord. God knows. Many just want to die so they can be trouble free. Then Elihu ends his speech to Job with a long speech on the power of God. Most of what Elihu says is true. But his problem is his purpose for saying all of this. Instead, he should repent of his pride. Job should be careful that he doesn't turn to sin by complaining and to find fault with God. That wouldn't bring Job relief from his trials. Job has spoken poorly about God at times. We've seen that. So Elihu, like Job's three friends, will arrogantly instruct, uh, instruct Job about God. Job can't, Job can't complain because his poor comments about God have, have given his enemies, you know, the, the ammunition to have this conversation with him about God. And Elihu mentions several things now about the excellence of God's power. Look at verse 22. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? The first, thing, the first thing that Elihu does here is praise God's power. He says God's power is above all power. First, he says no one teaches like God. God is the greatest teacher. No one can teach like God. God has the greatest mental powers. Verse 23. Elihu says, who has assigned him his way? Or who has said, you have done wrong? Elihu is saying, 
Nobody gives God orders. Nobody tells God what to do. He is the supreme commander. He is the supreme ruler. Everybody else is lower in rank. God has the most power in rank and the most power in authority. No one has the power to accuse God of anything. Because God is perfectly sinless. And holiness is the primary attribute, the primary character of God. And there is power in purity. Verse 24. Elihu is going to now proclaim God's majesty. Elihu says in verse 24, Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. We are to honor God's work, the things that he's done. But you know, we're, many times we're, we're, we're busy honoring, a lot of times, man's puny works and the things that he's done. To the point, you know, so many times that we, we don't have time to honor God's powerful works. Not many honor God for his work, even, even though his works make the greatest of man's work look like nothing in comparison. You know, we saw, we see, we see at times men in the scriptures, you know, they, they sing a song to God because of who he is. Listen to Psalm 66, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 16 through 17. It says, the psalmist said, make a joyful shout to God all the earth. Sing, notice, sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Notice he says, say it to God. Yeah, we're to tell it to other people, but tell God, praise Him, Lord. Your works are awesome, and your works are mighty. They're they're glorious, God. They're awesome. It says, through the greatness of your power, God, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in His doing towards the Son of Men. Come and hear all you who fear God. David said, and I will declare what He has done for my soul. I like that. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. Verse 25. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. God's works, which are the result of God's mighty power, can be seen by everyone. And they can, if they are honestly and sincerely looking with eyes to see. Psalm 19, 1 through 4 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. You know what he's saying? Just look at creation. The psalmist saying, just look at creation. Look up, look down, look around you. I mean, what he's done, his magnificence speaks out. It's all around us. Romans 1.20, Paul said, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, they are without excuse. You know, even if somebody had never heard the gospel and they're standing before God on Judgment Day, They're going to be without excuse. Creation says there is a God. Without speaking a word, creation says there is a God. 
man will not have any excuse for denying or dishonoring the power of God. Verse 26. Elihu says, Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be covered. One theme in the perceptive writings, the the insightful writings of the Bible is that God is incomprehensible. I mean, we can't even begin to understand God. We can't know Him completely. We can have some knowledge of Him, about Him, because the Bible is full of details about God, about who He is. You know, how we can know Him. How we can have an, an eternal relationship with Him. But we can never know enough to answer all of the questions of life. To predict our own future or to influence God for our own ends. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.11, No one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You know, in this life, man, we have so many, so many questions. Living, just living every day creates so many more questions than we have answers for. And we have to constantly go to God for, to, in order to get new insights in, into the difficulties of life. Verse 27 through 29. Elihu says, For he draws up drops of water which distill as rain from the midst which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder from his canopy? Here Elihu uses a storm to give several illustrations of his his power. First, he uses a rainstorm to throw light on the bottom of the sea. Lightning is loaded with God's unchanging power. Even the cattle, even the cattle, Know when a storm is coming. And let's look at verses uh, 31-33. For by these he judges the peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike. His thunder declares it. The cattle also concerning the rising storm. Like I said, even the cattle know when a storm is coming. Elihu was reminded by the storm of God's sovereignty and God's goodness. In verse, okay, and it says that by these mighty acts, you know, he nourishes the people, giving them food in abundance. In verse 31 there. Behold, he says in verse 26, he says, God is great and we know him not. And this is the theme of the last part of Elihu's speech. And he illustrates it with, with the works of God in nature, in creation. Specifically, that God's control of his world during the seasons of the year will continue. Will continue. And we'll see that in chapter 37. And, and it's going to say, and again, we're going to see so much of God and his power and, and his infinite wisdom in uh, the next couple of chapters for that Eli, he's, uh, I think it's 37 will be the last time that he speaks. But we'll see so much more there. So there's so much, you know, that we don't know about God and the ways of God. But here's the thing. Don't focus on what you don't know. Focus on what you do know. Because the Bible reveals enough of God. Like Elihu said, that we can know him. We can know about him. 
there's enough to know that, that where we can have a relationship with him. And that's what's important. That we have a relationship with him. That we know how to do that. And again, that's what's important about knowing the scriptures and reading the scriptures. Father, we thank you once again for this wonderful book, God, and the wonderful insights, Father, that we receive from it, God. You're glorious. You're wonderful, Lord. You're an awesome God. Mighty in power, mighty in word, mighty in deed. And God, let us think of you in that way. God, you're not, you're not some genie that we go to and demand that you fill all of our wishes or all of our whims, God. But Lord, you answer, you, you meet our needs, God. You're our sufficiency. You take care of us, God. And you will meet all of our needs, God. For your word says that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. I shall not want means that I will not lack anything needful in my life. So, Father, we look to you. We stand upon your word, God, and we stand upon your mighty promises, Lord. Let us never doubt you, Father. And Father, no matter what we're going through, no matter how difficult or painful, God, may it cause us to look up, to see you seated on the throne, making all things ready, God, preparing us for that, our, our last day here, God, whenever that might be, to meet with you, to be with you for all eternity. So, Lord, we thank you. We give you honor and glory. And we ask that you would just be with us as we go our separate ways, God. Protect us, watch over us. Get us through this week, God, and use us for your glory, God. May we be as lights that shine in a dark place. And, Father, we look forward to Sunday, God, as we meet together again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And Sunday morning, we'll be back in the...